Hi, I'm Devlin Camp. Thanks for joining me. Over on QueerSerial.com or on my Instagram at QueerSerial, you can explore the complete Queer Serial episode guide. You can also buy Queer History merch, explore my archive dives and behind the scenes of my documentary currently in production, and subscribe to listen to bonus episodes. If you subscribe to any of my bonus content through Spotify, Patreon, or Apple Podcasts, your subscription supports all of my ongoing LGBTQ history projects. Thank you so much. There are links to everything here in the episode notes or at QueerSerial.com. This is Season 5 of Queer Serial, a standalone miniseries. Heads up, this season features sensitive sexual content. These episodes detail the true story of a panic that swept Boise, Idaho in 1955. A panic that continues to spread and damage our communities today. Hey, look over there. A classic distraction technique. Distracting us away from the real issues that they were voted into office to focus on. Jobs, health care, keeping our children safe from harm at their own school. But we know that bullies are incompetent at solving real issues. They look for easy targets so they can give the impression of being effective. They think our love, our light, our laughter, and our joy are signs of weakness. But they're wrong, because that is our strength. Drag queens are the Marines of the queer movement. Don't get it twisted and don't be distracted. Register to vote so we can get these stunt queens out of office and put some smart people with real solutions into government. And by the way, a social media post has never been as powerful as a registered vote. January 7th, 1956. Sheriff Doc House and his wife arrive in San Francisco, driving 650 miles from Boise, Idaho. They meet an SFPD officer at a restaurant and find their target there, working. 29-year-old Melvin Durr, former star of the downtown Boise Little Theater. Mel is shocked. He's known Doc House his entire life, and he can't believe this man would drive across the country just to find him. Sheriff House tells Mel he's under arrest. The SFPD officer says to the Boise Sheriff, I don't understand. We wouldn't go over to Oakland to extradite somebody for a charge like this. But it is legal. Doc House takes Mel by the arm back to his car and puts him in the back seat. Mel isn't even handcuffed. Mr. and Mrs. House and Mel Durr drive back to Boise as if they're on a road trip together. Not as if one of them is extraditing another to their hometown's secret house for homosexual interrogations. Twilight shadows gleam, that's my time to dream, all alone with memories of you. All my prayers and hopes wander to the slopes of those far-off mountains that I know. Purple hills of Idaho, the shadows are falling. I'm Devlin Camp, and this is Gay Panic, Episode 6, 
the queen of the underworld. Mel is taken directly into Agent Bill Fairchild's 16th Street house for questioning. Mel is the 16th arrest in the so-called cleanup of Boise homosexuals, and he's proof to show the city councilmen who are criticizing the police that law enforcement is working. Look at the lengths to which they've gone to get Mel Durr. After Mel is made comfortable with some polite small talk in Agent Fairchild's living room on 16th Street, Fairchild tells Mel they know. They know he's the leader of the sex ring. He's the queen. He's going to be charged as the instigator, and he'll get life in prison. Mel remains calm. He knows this is just a little scare tactic to make him talk. So Fairchild tries another one. Fairchild turns to the tape recorder and plays one of his many taped confessions. Mel knows that voice. He's met this person. Frank Jones, a teenager from Boise, now a cadet at West Point. Frank is saying that Mel held a gun on him and made Frank go down on him. Mel says this is a lie. Agent Fairchild pushes back, trying to get a confession from Mel. They talk for nine hours, and finally Mel is allowed to call his attorney. Eventually, Mel Durr writes and signs a statement with what he says is the truth. January 7th, 1956. I, Melvin W. Durr, make the following statement of my own free will and without duress, promise of reward or leniency in any manner whatsoever to Blaine Evans, knowing that whatever I now say can and may be used against me now or at a later time in court. I have been advised of my rights to counsel. I first met the summer of 1953 and a group of his friends, boys and girls, and offered to drive them all home. When I got to his home, he did not want to get out. He said he wanted to drive around for a while because he very seldom got a chance to stay out late. We drove out to Warm Springs and eventually parked down a road by the old sanatorium. The conversation got around to Benny Castle and said he understood I knew him. I said yes. He said, how well? I said, well enough. He said, well, you must like to have sex then if you know Benny. So we had a mutual oral copulation. He went down on me first, then I went down on him. Afterwards, we talked about gay affairs that he had had with and and how much comings on went on at scout camp. I wish to state he is the son of Councilman Buck Jones, After the first incident, I accidentally ran into Frank Jones twice, and we went for drives and had mutual masturbation. This incident, Mel writes about, happened in 1953, long before this homosexual cleanup began. Melder is charged with infamous crimes against nature. Word spreads at West Point that Frank Jones has dropped out for medical reasons. In 1965, about a decade later, 
Reporter John Garrisey sits down with the police chief from the 50s, James Brandon, to ask him about the councilman's son, Frank Jones. The cop recalls, here his father had been hollering the loudest and his son was in on it. Councilman Buck Jones, still heartbroken and still a councilman in 1965, tells Garrisey, eyes watering, the whole thing was disgusting. It was a political witch hunt. What they did to my kid was disgusting. They didn't tell me a thing. He was in West Point, and in their investigation, they found out that he had had a homosexual experience three years earlier. They could have told me about it, and I would have had him brought home on an emergency leave, and then we could have gone into the whole thing. Instead, they send the sheriff, Doc House, and he gets a confession from my kid, and they boot him out of West Point then and there. It was dirty. In their investigation, there were other names, big shots involved. One very big name, but nothing happened to him. When Garrisey turns to ask Sheriff Doc House why he went to West Point to question the city councilman's son, the sheriff says, I put in extra hours of work to apprehend. I like to think that what I did was fair, getting the evidence, backing it up, but I feel I have no remorse. I tried to do it as confidentially as possible, but a record is a record. I didn't have any desire for big news. Garrisey pushes for a more specific answer as to why the sheriff felt he had to pull the councilman's son back into Boise to implicate the council in the gay scandal. Sheriff Duckhouse turns to Garrisey's assistant, and he says, can I see your notes? She looks to Garrisey, the reporter, and he nods. She gives the notes to the sheriff, who looks them over. Any objection, Garrisey asks. Sheriff House shakes his head, but he doesn't answer any more questions about Frank Jones. The sheriff's intention was apparently to bring city council the results they demanded of his police. The council was horrified by the truth of Councilman Jones's son, and the rift between local law enforcement and city leaders grew deeper. Mel Durr is the final arrest of the Boise Gay Panic. The paranoid hunt for homosexuals grinds to a sudden halt. But in the years after the panic's fallout, Mel Durr will not be the Gay Panic's final victim. The reporter, Garrisey, still looking for information in Boise, asks his lawyer to make sure he hears from him at least once a day. Ever since he found his hotel room turned upside down and had to send his research to New York for safekeeping, he's become paranoid. The Idaho governor in 65, Robert Smiley, writes to Garrisey's boss at Newsweek to complain about this investigation into Boise's past. Garrisey's boss at Newsweek tells the governor that the reporter isn't violating any rules of conduct by looking for the truth. Back in 56, the day after Mel Durr's confession, the Statesman reports, Boise Morals Drive lists 16th arrest. Sheriff House returns Mel Durr from Coast City. That same day, Boiseans erect a massive 60-foot steel cross onto a hillside, just a short hike from the penitentiary. The new cross looms over Boise to remind everyone what values are upheld in their town. The cross still stands in 2023. January 13th, 1956. 
the second person of the 16 arrested, gets probation. This is one of the lucky few who was able to keep his name out of the press. Judge Kolsch sentences this man to six years probation, not because he named names, but because Dr. Cornell testified that the man had been under his treatment and he believed the guy to be a heterosexual, despite his admitted 10 years of homosexual experiences in Boise and in the Navy. Dr. Cornell testifies that the man is, quote-unquote, fundamentally heterosexual, but his mother's death when he was a child upset the apple cart, his words again, and the doctor said he is not the aggressive type. He wasn't involved with minors, is what he means. So this time, the judge gives six years probation. The probation is announced the following day, January 14, 1956, in the newspapers. Some Boiseans begin to wonder how real this homosexual underworld is if only 16 men have been arrested, and now yet another one is getting away with probation. Where are the results that were promised? Where are these hundred boys infected by this so-called monster? The Time Magazine articles were embarrassing, and Tex Baker's murder confession discredits his accusation against the banker, Joe Moore. Even though Moore pleaded guilty, he was accused by a young murderer and his friend who were caught lying to the police, saying Tex's mother was the murderer. Who would believe them about Joe Moore now? The probation officer, Emery Bess, who seems to have started this whole thing back in episode one, he had the cases taken away from him by the police department. He still wants this job done to completion. He wants homosexuals in Boise wiped out, and he wonders if the police or the city authorities are fearful of continuing this job. He wonders, what have they learned? What do they know? But the town, it seems, is sated. Enough is enough. No one wants to talk about it anymore. The more homosexuals are caught, the dirtier Boise looks. The fewer homosexuals caught, the worse Boise's police or councilmen look, or local doctors, or prison, or churches. In any case, the filth of it all, the months of paranoia and fear, have sickened the city. There's no satisfying conclusion to this hunt. Just make it all go away. By March 1956, city council decides to end it their own way, a ceremonial firing. While the mayor, sheriff, and prosecutor are all elected officials, the chief of police is appointed by the mayor and can be removed from his position by a three-fourths majority vote by the city council, with or without the mayor. The council now votes unanimously to remove police chief James Brandon due to a serious lack of loyalty, cooperation, and coordination of police operations. But you know, no cop is ever really fired. Brandon returns to his previous job, captain of detectives. Mayor Edlifson speaks out, saying, This is a great injustice to the chief of police. He says this was done by people who want to get at me and at him. And the mayor says he wants to keep this matter open for further discussion. The mayor keeps the discussion open by refusing to appoint a new chief of police. Mayor Edlifson is not yet satisfied. He demands that city council appoint someone to control the homosexual threat to our community. A month later, the council responds by reprimanding the mayor in a statement sent to the press. With reference to your request of March 26th concerning your recommendation to establish a separate department to specifically handle youth problems, we believe that the letter is of worthy consideration at the proper time. However, 
We are all of united opinion that you, the mayor, should first fulfill your responsibility as mayor and appoint a competent police administrator at the earliest possible time. Mayor Edlifson says to a reporter, Due to the council's past action relative to the former chief, I feel that some qualified persons are hesitant about making application for the chief of police position in Boise. Dr. Butler says that if people want to pressure for action on the molestation problem, they shouldn't be looking for a cop. They should be looking for a psychiatric social worker, like every town needs, to take care of all sorts of problems that lead to crime. Nobody wants to hear that. Now, a word from our sponsor. You can listen to the first four seasons of Queer Serial free wherever you're listening to this episode right now. Hear the story of American queer liberation from its roots in the 1920s all the way through to Stonewall and beyond. If you'd like to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects, like the Randy Wicker and Marsha P. Johnson archives and my documentary currently in production, you can subscribe to bonus episodes of Queer Serial. It's $2.99 a month to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or if you subscribe for $3 a month, one cent more on Spotify or Patreon, you can also see my Queer History archive dives and behind the scenes of my documentary. That gets you everything I've ever posted on Patreon since the podcast started in 2017, and all of my bonus episodes, the queer serial spinoff stories, forgotten fairy tales, the White Knight Riot interviews, Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. And you can go ahead and see everything on that list in the episode guide at queerserial.com episodes. If you'd like to support my queer history work and get some gay merch for it, visit my new Etsy shop. I've got lots of podcast merch from throughout the series, lots of unique queer history related items that make cute gifts, like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar, featured in season two, some lovely mugs with rainbow maps that say queer history is world history. I have Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always from a note she wrote to Randy that's in her archive that I've been processing at the LGBT Center here in New York. My Etsy also has other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested and also stickers that you can put in textbooks that lack queer history to warn future readers of that book. Lots of stickers and buttons and fun stuff like that. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There are links to all of this and the bonus episodes and everything in the episode notes here and on my Instagram at queer serial and at queerserial.com. Thank you all so much for your support. You've enabled me to do so much over the past six years. I'm so grateful. Okay, that's it. That's my ad. Enjoy act two of this episode. Years later, in 1965, the reporter, Garrisey, meets with Bill Fairchild, the secret investigator in the house on 16th Street. Garrisey asks Fairchild, who called off the investigation? Fairchild had had a long list of names at that point in 1956, hundreds, with enough evidence to convict plenty of them. Fairchild looks at Garrisey, both of them knowing full well who called off the investigation, but neither of them saying it. 
Garrisey won't even publish the name in his 1965 book. His lawyers won't let him because the man remains powerful in 1960s Idaho. Fairchild says to Garrisey, there was only one guy we didn't get, and that wasn't because he refused to see us. He came to the house all right, but because he refused to confess. He was a lawyer and knew how to stick to his denials, even when presented with overwhelming circumstantial evidence. Fairchild explained some of his evidence to Garrisey. In 56, when this clever lawyer sat with Fairchild in the house on 16th, the policeman working the case brought a young man into the living room. He wasn't a minor, but he was when this lawyer supposedly had a sexual interaction with him. Fairchild asked the lawyer if he'd ever seen the guy. The lawyer said no. So the young man described the lawyer's office in great detail, claiming that the act was committed there. The lawyer resisted, saying someone must have described his office to this young man. Garrisey thinks on this story. He takes a moment. He asks Fairchild why the queen wasn't arrested, the alleged leader of the town's homosexual underworld, the man Fairchild described as typically the richest of the homosexuals in town, or the most important, or the prettiest one. Garrisey's reporting doesn't directly say whether or not this clever lawyer was the queen, or if the lawyer was the person who called off the investigation, or both. But in any case, if the queen exists, Garrisey asks, why wasn't he found and caught? Agent Fairchild says, I don't know. I turned in a report on him. Garrisey writes in his reporting here that the agent pauses, smiles mischievously, and adds, maybe no one could get corroborating evidence. The reporter Garrisey wants to find the queen too, should he exist, or at least understand how the queen got away. Garrisey returns to where the entire case began, the YMCA. Emery Bess, the probation officer, found his first suspects here. What brought Emery Bess to the Y? Garrisey finds that the staff had been asked to clean the place up. Someone came complaining to the YMCA that the place was infested with perverts and prostitutes. Garrisey digs. Who came complaining? The Idaho Allied Civic Forces. That's who. A wealthy Mormon group. The YMCA decided they should clean up, but they were worried about bad publicity by asking the police to stake the place out for sex work and perverts. So, the people who had come complaining, the Idaho Allied Civic Forces, offered to foot the bill for a private investigator. Howard Dice of the Gem State Investigation Service. The wealthy Mormon group was the mysterious client, unnamed in the newspapers. Garrisey finds that the Allied Civic Forces reported their work at the Y in their own newsletter, the Idaho Challenger. The Idaho Challenger wrote, the inequity was currently uncovered as a result of a courageous probation officer having the moral stamina to follow the facts to several church-related men of moral concern who were willing to dig deep in their pockets and provided a fund for employing a private investigator who gathered evidence. Garrisey wonders why the Mormons were so concerned with the seedy YMCA. People have been coming to Boise from neighboring towns for years to use the Y for sex work. Why clean it up now? Garrisey's theory is that the wealthy Mormon allied forces came for the Y 
under the guise of morality, that really, people like the wealthy men who pull legal strings and control state resources from the dining hall at the Arid Club, the so-called Boise Gang, they're looking at a bigger picture. Garrisey suspects this event is not just a moral panic created to distract people from other problems that the gang profits from, as previously discussed in episode two. The reporter suspects also that the alleged queen is one of the Arid Club's own in the Boise Gang, with ambitions to create new jobs and start an urban renewal program. Garrisey's suspect for the queen was a powerful man working within City Hall. The Boise gang would push against anyone who stands to take economic power from them, even if he's one of them. So they followed him around to see where he went and what he got up to in his free time. And they discovered a pretty easy way to take him down. He's a pervert, a homosexual. The Boise gang at the Arid Club contacted the YMCA. They used their religious club to volunteer to pay for a private eye. Detective Dice was paired with a very homophobic probation officer, Emery Bess, As they were hired to, they staked out the YMCA for perverts in general, and the Arid Club gang waited for the Queen to get caught in the trap. Dice and Bess caught the first three homosexuals on Halloween 1955, and the probation officer Bess immediately went to the press and publicly demanded that the whole city act. He called for widespread action because these, quote, arrests represent the start of an investigation that has only scratched the surface. The Boise gang wanted the queen to be taken down, and they wanted to shake up city hall reformists. But incidentally, the whole town, steeped in Cold War paranoia, got wrapped up in their scheme, demanding more action. The police and the city hiring the interrogator and renting him a house, the mayor and the city council at odds, the newspaper fanning the flames, the citizens gathering in angry town halls, the queer people of Boise hiding or skipping town, all while the elusive wealthy queen slipped away. The image of the homosexual underground Boiseans conjured up in their heads was of some kind of clandestine syndicate, a secret society, some organized system of homosexuals meeting together and grooming our children. That's why groups like Mattachine and the Daughters of Belitis were dangerous to participate in. But of course, in Boise, the homosexual underground was much simpler than all that. They were just people cruising for sex in the places they found to be safe for them. The parks, the Y, library bathrooms, bus stations. In such a desperately poor time and place, how could money and minors not come into the picture? The town consistently turned away the resources to fix those problems, to actually help young people. If this nightmare, fairyland, underworld fantasy Boiseans have imagined doesn't actually exist, And all this going on about a dozen or so queers picked up in the parks has brought so much agonizing hysteria to town, then why bother continuing on some search for a ringleader queen who is probably untouchable anyway? The reporter, John Garrisey, reasons that the queen was simply a powerful man whose homosexual secret was used against him by his enemies. He escaped their trap. The town's hysteria and the other 16 men were incidental.
By March 1956, the anti-gay forces put in place by the Boise gang and all their tangential connections fade away. The town is exhausted. The private eye, the house on 16th Street, the law enforcement's constant sweeping of the city, it all calms down and Agent Bill Fairchild leaves town. The Boise Ministerial Association releases a statement acknowledging the valiant efforts of the prosecuting attorney, Ada County Sheriff, and the Boise City Police in cleaning up our community and safeguarding the welfare of our boys. We request them and their assistance to continue to protect the community by all legal means from known homosexuals who prey on our youth. We assure them our wholehearted cooperation and support. The panic of the gay witch hunt is over. But Boiseans still demand that those homosexuals who were already caught be brought to justice. March 6th, 1956. Paris Martin, a prominent attorney and the first to plead not guilty, goes on trial. The courthouse is packed with women in the audience and an all-male jury. A police sergeant testifies that Martin freely confessed to infamous crimes since he was 17 and to a few specific acts in 1955. Martin's lawyer says he is not being charged with a tendency and cannot be convicted of a tendency, only a specific crime. The YMCA secretary reluctantly takes the stand to testify for the prosecution. He explains that Paris Martin came to his office for spiritual guidance away from his homosexual activities. The prosecution then brings another adult to the stand, 21-year-old Eldon Halverson. Halverson has named several homosexuals, including the teacher, the janitor, the pianist, the typewriter salesman, and the clothing salesman. Eldon Halverson says his interaction with Paris Martin was early last August, and he describes it in detail. The defense points out some odd inconsistencies in Halverson's story. For instance, Halverson said Martin was wearing a heavy flight jacket because it was a cool day. The defense presents a temperature chart proving Boise was in the 70s and 80s every evening in the first 15 days of August. The trial continues. After three days, on March 8, 1956, Judge Merlin Young tells the all-male jury that if a crime was committed, then Eldon Halverson was an accomplice in this crime, and his testimony can't be accepted without corroboration. The jury deliberates and comes back to declare Paris Martin not guilty. The following day, March 9th, 1956, another man named by Eldon Halverson arrives in court. This 34-year-old pianist, whose name also remains redacted, was also not involved with minors. Like yesterday, the outcome of this case will influence the outcome of other cases coming, because so many of them have been named by 21-year-old adult Eldon Halverson. The pianist brings letters from his doctors and one from his probation officer, describing his affliction. It reads, in part, the subject relates that he was raised in a home that was dominated by his own parents and his grandparents, and being the only grandson, he grew up to be very much of a sissy, the way his mother and grandmother wished. And then he had scarlet fever at the age of three years, and he had measles and a mastoid operation at the age of four. Tonsils removed at the age of four, glasses at the age of eight, besides having a broken leg when seven. He was a very sickly child, and this caused him to be very much under the domination of the womenfolk of the home. 
When he did get to play with the neighborhood kids, he recalls being ignored by the boys, even when in the early grades of school. Marital, never married, past offenses, none. FBI report reveals invert pervert. This is related as being a routine checkup by the officials. There were no charges pressed. Present offense, the having of relationship with a male by the name of Eldon Halverson on the 15th day of May, 1955. He relates that as a child in school, he was ignored by other boys and was referred to as a sissy even through high school. He related that he thought there was something wrong with his thinking, but was ignorant of what was right as he and his father did not discuss life. In fact, he did not go with his father to any of the sporting functions that usually a father and son enjoy together. Because of this, the subject relates that he grew to where he was not interested in women or girls, but became attracted to men. Since his arrest and the assistance he has had from various doctors, the subject relates that he has an altogether outlook on life much to the better. The 34-year-old pianist Seattle psychiatrist also writes to Judge Merlin Young. Was examined in the office on December 21st and December 22nd, 1955. On December 23rd, I admitted him to hospital in this building where I performed an examination under narcosis induced by intravenous sodium amytal. Redacted was uniformly straightforward and cooperative during all examinations. His story was logical, coherent, and consistent. I feel quite confident that he was truthful. He admits to a long series of homosexual contacts over the past 13 years. These have been oral genital contacts with willing adult males. He denies, and I think truthfully, any interest in perverse activities involving younger people, the inflicting of pain or use of force. In other words, I find no evidence of a tendency to the more malignant symptoms of sexual deviation. He is remarkably free from other psychopathological symptoms, has an active and well-integrated conscience, and a strong feeling of responsibility to society. I would not expect him to ever become engaged in criminality except the present situation, which is the expression of a type of neurosis. It is possible, of course, to lie under barbiturate narcosis, but I found his answers remarkably consistent with the material he had produced in the waking state. In a follow-up letter, Dr. Jarvis states his willingness to accept for treatment if the court should find that probation or suspension of sentence is justified. He explains the medical treatment for homosexuals, which is also quite brutal, and that there's no way of knowing how long it'll take or if it'll work. Dr. Butler also writes to the judge in favor of parole. Judge Merlin Young gives the pianist five years probation and orders him to continue his treatment. You can straighten yourself out in this matter, the judge says, and to an extent he must have, because a little over a year later, the probation officer will write to the judge to report that the pianist has fulfilled his requirements, moved to California, got a new job, and continues treatment there. The Department of Probation of San Francisco will recommend the pianist's final discharge from probation. On March 23, 1956, Another homosexual is probated, this time by Judge Kolsch, who tells him this probation punishment will be harsh because you'll be the object of ridicule and scorn. The next week after that, Judge Kolsch lets a child molester go with probation, explaining that there isn't any evidence of more crimes, and since the incident was three years ago, these inconsistent punishments, justifications, definitions, they make it very confusing for people reading the newspaper to understand the difference between a pedophile and a homosexual and what each of them deserve for their actions and how their conditions should be treated 
and what their overall intentions were when they walked into Julia Davis Park under the cover of night. Despite the Boise gay panic coming and going in a manic flash, the social consequence is a widespread and long-lasting, misinformed melding of queer people and pedophiles. To complicate the conversation further, suddenly, in March 1956, both Judge Kolsch and Judge Young begin granting all the accused men probation and no jail time. Multiple men who had not committed acts with minors are already in jail, despite doctors recommending parole and psychiatric treatment. Some of these newly paroled men had interactions with minors. What changed now? The reporter, Garrisey, studying the case a decade later, tries to unravel this question, writing, Once it is admitted that the sentence can vary according to character of the criminal and or the circumstances surrounding the crime, instead of the crime itself, then the argument that punishment is imposed on the guilty in order to show justice to the innocent is no longer valid. If I, the innocent, am to be convinced that stealing does not pay, I will want to be sure that all thieves caught are punished. Otherwise, if I am suddenly told that thieves who are one-armed or who hold guns upside down or who are poor can escape punishment, then I might very well try to arrange favorable conditions to justify stealing. Under the deterrent theory, there can be no room for exceptions since all human beings consider themselves exceptions at one time or another. Judges do not assume that because they are judges in a court of law that they are also psychologists or sociologists. It would have been perfectly logical for Boise's judges to send all homosexuals to prison on the deterrent theory or to jail only those who had involved minors. But once the judges began to find extenuating circumstances to vary their sentences in both groups, they flouted their own stated logic. A judge has no right, it seems to me, John Garrisey, to ignore psychiatric evidence in some cases on the grounds that not to punish a criminal would be unfair to the innocent, and then to use psychiatric evidence in other similar cases to justify probation on the grounds that the crime was committed under special circumstances. Not even judges can have their cake and eat it too. A week later, on March 30th, 1956, the actor, Mel Durr, is arraigned. The same day, the clothing salesman, Gordon Larson, pleads not guilty, perhaps because Judge Kolsch just let a child molester off with probation, and Larcy was only, quote-unquote, guilty of consensual sex with an adult, Eldon Halverson. Another week later, April 9, 1956, Mayor Edlifson still hasn't appointed a new chief of police, and he's still furious about the homosexual problem. So he writes an angry letter to the city council, spilling her guts, honey, and the council has his statement printed in the newspaper. The members of this council are aware that an extensive investigation has been carried on during the past several months on the homosexual problems in this area. Much of this work was carried on by the Boise City Police Department under the direction of Captain Brandon in cooperation with the personnel and facilities offered by the County Sheriff's Office, the Office of the County Prosecutor of Ada County, and the Office of the Attorney General of the State of Idaho. The investigation was as thorough as the nature of the problem would permit, and every effort was made to contact any person in this area who might have some knowledge of the situation. A total of 1,472 persons were interviewed. It is my opinion that the establishment of a bureau within the Boise City Police Department and in cooperation with the Ada County officials to police and handle the existing problem and to safeguard the youth of this area will not admit of further delay. 
It is my opinion that Captain Brandon is best qualified by experience obtained during those investigations, experience as a detective and police officer, knowledge and stature in the community, and character to fulfill this assignment. Citizens are continuing to follow the story in the papers. Dr. Butler says psychiatric help is still needed in town. Ministers say the community has been cleaned up over these past months. The city council says there is a huge problem still in need of fixing by a chief of police. The mayor says, yes, there is still a huge problem here, and we need a special bureau of investigators to go after the homosexuals. All of these points of view lead Boiseans to believe that the cleanup has just begun. The mayor says at least 1,472 homosexuals are out there, minus the measly 16 arrested. When speaking to Garrisey a decade later in 1965, many people recall that number, 1,472, saying only 16 of the nearly 1,500 the mayor mentioned had been caught. The day after the mayor's public statement to the council, probation officer Emery Bess is asked to resign due to his general incompatibility in working with other officers. Bess says he's disgusted that the whole town is too scared to take on the pervert underground, too weak to protect their children. He says he's being fired because of considerable pressure brought to bear against him by groups embarrassed by the homosexual scandal that he uncovered at the YMCA. That's 1950s for I was canceled by the woke libs. Dr. Butler is vilified for telling Boiseans that they're too puritanical and, frankly, ignorant. As discussed before, generally, Boiseans don't want to learn anything new here. They just want it all to disappear and everything to conform back to quote-unquote normal, which was their problem from the very beginning. Mel Durr and Gordon Larson plead not guilty. Willard Wilson and Joe Moore have appealed to the state Supreme Court. And Joe Moore's accuser, Tex Baker, is headed to trial for the murder of his father. With Bess and Brandon fired, Councilman Jones furious, the mayor lashing out, the statesman newspaper backtracking, and the town worn down, Ada County Attorney Blaine Evans continues to prosecute those remaining 16 men for their actions, mostly with other consenting adults. The prosecutor Blaine Evans needs to wrap this scandal up and get some strong results for the town so he can win a state senate seat. Tune in next time for Appeals, the Penitentiary, and a Hidden Camera. Stay tuned to hear me read some credits if you like. And in the meantime, you can visit QueerSerial.com or QueerSerial on Instagram for the complete series episode guide and lots of images and videos from the true history on this podcast. If you want bonus episodes featuring exclusive interviews with queer legends and spinoff stories from Queer Serial, you can now subscribe to get the full catalog of bonus episodes for $2.99 on Apple Podcasts. It's super easy. Just visit the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts 
You can also get all of those bonus episodes, plus queer history archive dives and exclusive behind the scenes peeks into production on my documentary by subscribing to my Patreon now through Spotify. It's super easy. Just open Spotify and search queer serial bonus shows and there's a whole feed of queer serial bonus shows. That Spotify feed will also give you access to everything on my Patreon. Or if you just want the bonus episodes, you can save a whole penny and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. By the way, the documentary I mentioned is basically a sequel project to Queer Serial. It's created by me and Jim Morrow at Viridian Coast Studios, and it's all about archiving Randy Wicker's gay forest gump of a life. And it's about his extended gay family, including Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, and so many more people whose names deserve to be written into our history. The Wicker Family documentary is very much a queer serial movie. You can help support my work archiving Randy and Marsha's materials with the LGBT Center Archives here in New York, an ongoing years-long process, and see behind the scenes of that project and its documentary at patreon.com slash queerserial. You can also support my work by shopping in my Etsy store, etsy.com slash shop slash queerhistoryuplift or just by subscribing to bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Patreon. Every little bit of support helps. Okay, thanks for listening. Here are the credits. Resources for this series include John Garrisey's 1965 book, The Boys of Boise, Seth Randall's 2006 documentary, The Fall of 55, and Intimate Matters, A History of Sexuality in America by John D'Amelio and Estelle B. Friedman. Find more info at QueerSerial.com. To learn more about America's history of gay panics and their causes, listen to Queer Serial Season 1, Episode 4, The Lavender Scare. Music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. The theme song, It's Noisy Out in Boise, Idaho, is a 1949 song by the King's Jesters. Could that be more perfect for a Mattachine production? This show is entirely supported by subscribers on Patreon and by bonus episode subscribers on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just $2.99 a month. Thank you. Queer Serial is written, hosted, edited, produced, etc. by me, Devlin Camp. What a cool job. Back next week. Bye.